President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, goes Montana! He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to the second season of Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series. I'm Diane Christman. This season, we're focusing on innovation in the cable industry. We visit with today's industry innovators and hear from others whose innovative ideas and actions helped establish its entrepreneurial foundation. Much of the content presented in this series is new and original, and some is edited from audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Welcome to the Cable Center's Hauser Oral History Series. We're about to hear an oral history recorded by Rob Kennedy, a longtime cable industry executive, entrepreneur, programming maven, who is the president and co-CEO of C-SPAN. And uh, Rob, you're going to take us back into some recollections and um, memories of where you've been and where C-SPAN has been. But I'd like to turn the tables as a prelude and ask you to identify whether it's technology or content or, or culture, where do you see C-SPAN going? This is 2018. What's ahead? Well, it's very important for us going forward to make sure that we can stay true to our founding mission, but adapt to changes in society and technology. I think we've had a good track record of doing that over really the past 40 years as we've built innovations in both programming and technology into what we do at C-SPAN. That's only accelerating now with uh, technology, new means of receiving content Mm -hmm. and distributing content. So it's very important for us to adapt and to make our mission uh, relevant to our audience in all the different ways that they uh, consume their their media and their video content. Excellent. With with that as prelude, let's hear from Rob Kennedy of C-SPAN. Hi, I'm Seth Ehrenstein here for the Hauser Oral History Project for the Cable Center. We're here in New York City at the end of November 2016, and I'm joined by the co-CEO of C-SPAN, Rob Kennedy. Welcome. Thank you, Seth. In the materials, I noticed that you um, helped craft the sort of the mission statement or the or the strategic plan, if you will, for C-SPAN. It was in the early 80s, yeah. and I was working at Centel. Right. My boss at the time, the head of the cable division at Centel, was named Jack Frazee. And if you've ever met Jack, he's a guy who's just full of personality, very lively, very encouraging, enthusiastic. Jack was on the C-SPAN board. The C-SPAN board is composed of CEOs of cable companies. That's the way it's always been, even dating back to 1980. And Jack on the board felt that it was really important for C-SPAN to have a sound financial structure. It started in 79 with a very modest license fee and essentially donations of seed money from cable companies. And Jack and the other board members at the time wanted to look at how the license fee could grow, how carriage could grow, and how that money could support C-SPAN covering the 84 conventions, the 84 mm-hmm. campaign, for example. So uh, Jack, who was always big about throwing people, his staff, into unusual situations and seeing how they performed, including managing cable systems at a very young age, he uh, had me meet with Brian Lamb in Chicago and then lent me to C-SPAN to come to Washington to meet Brian other early staff members, we've talked, Susan Swain, we'll talk about Susan, right, sure. Bruce Collins, Brian Lockman, right. Jana Fay, and help write a five-year plan that took C-SPAN from about 1980 to 1985. And that was really my first exposure to C-SPAN and, and to the staff. And what, what was it like when you walked in the door? Can you recreate what, what C-SPAN was like in terms of number of employees, carriage, what was on its air? So this would have been the fall of 1983. Okay. And C-SPAN was located then, as it is now, 
at 400 North Capitol Street okay. in Washington, but it was a much smaller office. I think there were maybe around two dozen employees. Mm. Uh, the C-SPAN had recently gone to 24 hours. It was only one network. It was only C-SPAN. It was only C-SPAN. Okay. It was the Congress whenever it was in session, the uh, committees, House Representatives when it was in session. Senate had not gone on television yet. Uh, congressional committees, a lot of you are call-in programs, morning, midday, and night. A lot of the staff doubled as moderators for our call-in programs. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, Susan did it. Bruce did it. Obviously, Brian did it. And it was, uh, it, I don't know the exact carriage number then, but I'm guessing maybe in the low double digits of, of carriage. And C-SPAN, the, the story is that C-SPAN started on a shoestring so much so that people used to bring extension cords from home if they were needed in, in, in the office. I don't remember seeing any extension cords, but it was definitely a, a bare-bones operation. But the thing that I noticed was how dedicated they all were to the mission. Brian did an excellent job in selecting people early on who wanted to work at C-SPAN for the right reasons. They didn't want to be in sports, they didn't want to be in, in spot news, but they were there dedicated to the mission of public affairs television. And they welcomed me, I, I really appreciated that because here's this guy coming from a board member company and they welcomed me, opened up the books and we sat down and, and drafted up this plan, which I still have a copy of on my, wow. on my shelf. You know, today we take C-SPAN for, for granted in that, you know, if we want to know what's going on in the House or the Senate, we put on C-SPAN 1, C-SPAN 2. Um, but, I mean, I can remember uh, when, you know, Senate coverage began, and that was a little controversial. Um, can you tell us about House coverage? Was that, was that an automatic thing, or was, were there hurdles there, too? Oh, there were hurdles in both bodies. Okay. The House had experimented before 1979 with cameras. And it w there, were, there were members in the House who were very interested in cameras. One of the main concerns was, will anybody see it? Uh, another concern was, will, will television networks um, edit this and embarrass us. It's the old, what if you just take a clip and don't get the entire context? Mm -hmm. So while the House was debating this, Brian, who had worked in the cable industry for several years with a trade publication and had made contacts within the industry, Brian had the idea to kind of marry the industry's need for programming with the House's desire for their feed to go out on a full-time basis. So he, he worked with both sides. Uh -huh. He said to the cable industry, hey, we could do this as a public service. This would be really good programming. And on the House's side, I think we can do this in a way that satisfies your concerns. Now the House still controls the cameras. Right. So while some of their concerns were addressed, they kept other items close to the vest, but it really was Brian bringing those two things together. In addition to satellite technology, which was new at the time, that got C-SPAN launched. And we were the sixth cable network to launch. Uh-huh. It's a trivia that surprises many people. And it's the, it's the House majority that controls the cameras, is that right? Right. Yeah. The, the majority controls right. the cameras, right. and they've been responsible over the years for those incidents where something happens with the cameras. Yes. We saw one relatively recently. And, That's right. And you all improvised pretty well. You picked up somebody's periscope feed eventually, yes. and that was fabulous. Um, so, okay, so I guess the other thing coming off of that, coming off hurdles, and I'm sure Brian would love us to talk about it, is, and you know where I'm going, the Supreme Court. Will we ever have C-SPAN cameras in the Supreme Court? I think it's a long shot in the really? next several years. Huh. Yes. Wow. As we understand it, it must be unanimous among the justices. Right. And even though many justices during their nomination process say, I've had a good experience with cameras, I think we could do that in Supreme Court. Once they get on the court, there's some sort of force, I guess, 
that uh, we never hear more about cameras in the court. I've read all their arguments. I don't buy them. That's, I think that if we as citizens can go sit in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. which I think everyone should do if they get a chance, and listen to an argument, I think it should be available on television. In, in fairness to the court, they now release audio, audio. Right. of the oral arguments the same week, later right. in the week. So we're getting access we've never had before. And we put that audio on C-SPAN, but with stills, with the pictures right. of the justices or the attorneys. Right. Um, thinking beyond the Supreme Court, are there other places in politics, in economics, uh, that you would like to put your cameras? I'm thinking maybe... I don't know. Does the Federal Reserve Committees, do they have cameras in those meetings? I would think not. They do not. They do not. They is, do that, not. is that something on the agenda? Well, their press briefings afterwards right, right. are on the agenda right. and are on, on cameras. Right. And there are some committees in Congress that cameras aren't allowed in, the Intelligence Committee. Oh, well, I, that's fair I enough. Would think. Yeah. Occasionally there are closed hearings sure. for various reasons. Sure. But especially with the use of technology, we've been able to get access in many, many places around Washington. Right. And for that matter, uh, on the road with small portable cameras or wireless cameras, we can get up close to candidates on the trail. Right. And so I think overall our access is, is good, not only based on the institutions, but also based on uh, technology. Now, what about the philosophy at C-SPAN? Um, there must be tremendous pressure to once in a while edit something. Hey, you know, we just, uh, well, I could I could just see some pressures to edit something down. I know that's anathema to, to your philosophy, but how do you keep that philosophy, which in many ways people would say is sort of um, terribly against the grain of, of modern press, um, how do you keep that philosophy vibrant in the halls at C-SPAN? It's the core to what we do, Right, is we want to be the primary source for these events. We want them to be available in their entirety. Now, times have changed, right? and I think our attention spans are shorter. So we've certainly adapted over the years, mm-hmm. a couple of ways. One is our video library. Right. which is online, everything we've aired since 1987. Those events can be streamed in their entirety, or you can make your own clip, share it on your social media platforms, and get a discussion started around it. But when you see that video C-SPAN, you know that the whole thing is is on our air and is available in the video library. And yes, sometimes we take clips to illustrate a point, sure. maybe during a call-in right, program right, or right. in you one do. of our radio you programs. Do. You do. Um, yeah, and I guess we, we can't, we certainly have to talk about um, technology. And I, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you're one of the, the, the forces there at C-SPAN for adapting or adopting new technology. And, and certainly the video library is one thing, but streaming and... and and um, the use of Twitter on the air and Facebook and things like that, you're really right there. And um, how, how does that all come about? Because, again, C-SPAN um, or other networks were much slower than you uh, to, adapt some, to adopt some of these technologies. Yeah, thanks. We've been thinking about this uh, lately, and I think that being efficient with technology is is deep in our DNA. Right. And we have a, a great team, many of whom have been at C-SPAN longer than I have. I started in 87, and a lot of our technical and editorial folks joined in the early 80s. Right. And I know I joked earlier about the extension cord, but we were different than the broadcast television networks at the time. Public affairs television will never get the ratings. Well, we don't even take no. ratings. No or the license fees of for-profit networks. So we literally had to invent ways to cover events with smaller cameras, portable racks, robotic cameras around town, uh, portable lights, uh, portable audio gear, wireless gear. Our team is always looking for ways to improve what we do and, and keep our operations efficient. Just one example. 
we have many. Yeah. But when witnesses testify at a congressional hearing, the, the tradition was the cameras set up in the back, mm -hmm. which would cover the members of Congress, right. and a camera would be on the side shooting the witnesses or the witness table. Well, that's not a very fair picture of the witnesses because you're shooting them from their side. But no one wanted people down in the well of the committee room right. where they could face them. So our team invented a robotic camera that sits in the well and shoots at the witness with a medium shot just the same as we're shooting the members of, members of Congress. Wow. So just one way, not another person, uh, adds perspective to the event we carry and a more complete and accurate picture of what's going on in the room. And what about the C-SPAN bus? Did you have a hand in that? Did you ever drive it? <laughs> I've never driven it. Oh. Don't believe anything to the contrary. Uh, the C-SPAN bus. C-SPAN bus launched in 1993. It grew out of a book called The Magic Bus by Douglas Brinkley. Oh. Brian did a uh, Sunday night program called Book Notes, author interviews. It, it survives now in the form of a program he hosts called Q&A, also right, on right. Sunday nights. In The Magic Bus, Doug Brinkley took his college students from Hofstra University on a bus trip that was to sites of American history and pop culture. It was several weeks long. I think there were 20 students. They outfitted this bus so the students even lived on the bus. And the book, which is still a great read, is just about their experiences. The city kids from Long Island coming to places like Graceland or a blues club in Chicago. And Brian literally came off the set from that interview of Book Notes and came upstairs and said to Susan and me, we gotta do a bus. We gotta do a bus. We gotta do this, get C-SPAN on the road, get C-SPAN out there. And then we all did a lot of homework on big diesel engines and 40 and 45 foot coaches. We know more about buses than we should. But the basic idea, and forgive the pun, is it's a promotion and production vehicle for C-SPAN. It's, uh, it's varied in its appearance over the years, but the idea is to go to schools, colleges, high schools, middle schools, bring students or the general public on, and really demonstrate what C-SPAN is and how they can use it in their, in their studies. Brian Lamb, who, you know, a lot of people just see him on camera. We've seen him off camera. Uh, on camera, to me, frankly, I think he's... I've never seen him do a bad interview. He's such a good interviewer. And I mean, I've seen him interview Shaquille O'Neal one time. <laughs> I thought, how is he going to do that? And he did it so well. What is he like to work with? And what is he like personally? And uh, what is he doing at C-SPAN now? He is absolutely great to work with. Right. He, at his core, is extremely curious. And he loves information. You put the two things together in someone who grew up in Lafayette, Indiana, and only had the three television newscasts for all television news. It's 20 minutes a night on three networks. He comes to Washington. He sees so much more is going on in the city. He wants to find a way to bring that into living rooms in the Midwest. So it all kind of starts with his Midwest values and just trying to get more information and then to relay that information. And that's how he is to work with. He's, he's curious about what's going on. He trusts people with a lot of responsibility. Over the years, he was very, I think, structured and deliberate in moving from the CEO role to let, and not just Susan and me, yes, we have the titles of co-CEOs, but our entire executive team, our vice presidents, have been growing in terms of their responsibilities over the year. And Brian has, has shepherded this. And what's he do now? He still comes in at, I don't know, five every morning oh before I get there. Uh, he walks around. He, he just asks people how things are going. Uh, occasionally he weighs in, but people gravitate towards him. He's very interested in them personally yeah. Yeah. and is just great 
fun to work with. He's got a wicked sense of humor, too. Yes, I know. Yeah. I know. I've had the honor many times to talk with him, <laughs> had lunch with him one time. Yeah, no, he's fabulous. Um, and I, I think one thing that you left out that I'd like to add is that he's kind of uh, selfless. He doesn't like the spotlight. He doesn't like to be, you know, honored or tributes. And um, he he pushes the the spotlight on other people. He he set the network up that way, right. and I think that reflects his his personal values. Anyone who's hosted a program on C-SPAN, who's on our staff, also has another job at C-SPAN. They might be executive producer of our book programming or one of the producers on the Washington Journal. We rarely show their names right. in graphics. He expects our hosts to be facilitators, not stars. He saw how the stars kind of consumed nightly news right. that takes away from the information Absolutely. content. So he set the example by doing call-in programs for years and years and his continued interviews. And the rest uh, we followed. Brian has wanted to do this in a cost-efficient way for the industry. We, we couldn't do it and I'm understating it here. C-SPAN would not exist without the support of the cable industry. We don't have ad revenue. Right. We don't take ratings. There's no government money in C-SPAN. It's all the license fees we get from affiliates. We know it's important to keep that license fee reasonable compared to what other programming networks charge. And we're very fortunate to have a board of directors drawn from the cable industry who can approve our budgets and advise us on what that fee is. But being maybe low cost among programming networks, if you're efficient, that doesn't mean you have to be cheap per second right. rate. And we've always stressed the use of technology to innovate. We talked about the RoboCam, other small cameras to make the production side of the business very efficient. We don't spend a lot of money on advertising or marketing. Nope. That's another piece of it. It's hard to sell C-SPAN or explain the concept of C-SPAN in a full-page ad in a paper. I know I'm dating myself, but that used to be the metric. We tried, spent a lot of money on those ads, and we were always, oh, but we didn't say this, we didn't say this. They were text-heavy ads. So we went for what I call high-touch advertising. It's the bus. It's talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. It's our student cam documentary contest where we right. introduce students to C-SPAN video and they put it in, in documentaries. So we just, we couldn't follow the same road the other networks. We, we didn't want to get our costs out of line. We, we respect that we've, we now have three channels on our cable systems and, and uh, on our affiliates. So we've got to uh, reflect upon that and, and keep our costs reasonable. And we're pretty tough. You're pretty lean, I would say. I yeah, want to bring out that point. We're, we're kind of... I suppose Susan would agree. We're, we're kind of tough budgeters. We, yeah. we, Susan and I sit in budget meetings with every department. We review staff additions and changes. Right. Uh, we, we look to see if programs are still working or should they be changed. We try not in, get in the habit of just doing something because we've done it. We used to have two buses. Right. Now we're, we have one just because we thought we saturated right. the country and we can do well with one. But then in its place, we launched the project its formal name is the C-SPAN Cities Tour, but it's six small vehicles that go out and blanket a community, three, three vehicles at a time. And over the course of a week, we'll shoot over a dozen pieces on history and books with a staff of three. And then those short pieces air on C-SPAN 2 and C-SPAN 3. Very efficient, a lot of content, not a lot of money. If I had to ask you what you really love about being at C-SPAN um, in terms of the programming, the service that you provide to the country. What is it? Is it, is it introducing people to government? Is it getting people more involved in civic activities? Um, what is it? What, what turns you on about what C-SPAN does? I have two, two answers to okay. that. Uh, one is nowadays I love our callers. Okay on our call-in programs. We have, our primary call-in program is the Washington Journal, right. seven to 10 Eastern time, seven days a week. Right. And we try to take 60 calls a day, works out to 20,000 a year. So a lot of American voices. 
And especially with this most recent election, yes. I think the callers represent a way for all of us to get out of our bubbles. Absolutely. And here, what's on people's mind, why they're supporting the candidate they're supporting, and how passionate they are. And that, for me, helped put this recent election into, into a framework where you can say, okay, the supporters believe this, these supporters believe that, and you can listen to them every day. But there's another part of C-SPAN, which is, it's a little bit like, Susan says, it's a little bit like church. It's good to have in town. You may not go there every weekend, but every once in a while, you, you're glad you can go. Uh, or the public library, if you want a more secular uh, analogy. And there's usually something important to someone personally that will get coverage on C-SPAN. Now, uh, we're, we're here at the end of November 2016. We will have a new administration in Washington in a couple of months. And at least at the moment, the president-elect uh, and during the campaign was not, I, I, I couldn't really call him press-friendly. He doesn't seem to like big media. Um, he uses social media a lot, which I guess is good um, on, in some respects, but he bypasses the press uh, somewhat intentionally. Does this, uh, what does this mean for C-SPAN? Um, and does it maybe even make C-SPAN more relevant and more important than, than even it was several weeks ago? Well, I think it certainly helps us in terms of relevancy. The, the idea of whether it's the president or politicians going mm -hmm. directly to the public with social media has been building now for some time. And, and clearly, uh, President-elect Trump's campaign, he did that to a yeah. degree never before seen. But there is still official Washington. There are still many, many steps before legislation is enacted, before policies are set. There are press brief briefings almost every day at the White House and in Congress, obviously congressional hearings. And we are also members of the presidential pool that will follow the president around to the mm -hmm. extent he, he allows. Exactly. But these events taken together, and then of course they're all in our video library, will paint a really full picture, I think, of, of what is going on. So as long as the institutions in Washington remain open and accessible in the same spirit that the House from 79 and the Senate from 86, I think we'll be in good shape and I think C-SPAN will be in great shape. Rob, a, a, another legacy question, C-SPAN's legacy, what, what do you think it will be or what would you like it to be? I would like it to be understood, and I think it is, as one of the great things that the cable industry did. Here's a service started in 1979 at the very earliest days of cable, where the leaders of the industry said, yeah, Brian, that's a pretty good idea. Let's give it a shot. We're going to do it as non-commercial, non-profit, a public service, no advertising, no ratings, we'll support it, we'll carry it. And that's allowed us to grow and remain relevant and to make all of these changes over the years to either add programming and distribution. Cable industry's done a lot of great things, and I hope C-SPAN's always gonna be listed as one of those things. We're going to hear in a moment um, a, a recount and some memories and some thoughts from Susan Swain, who is president and co-CEO of C-SPAN. As a prelude to that, Susan, I'm speaking to you in late 2018, and I'd love to know not where you've been, but where do you see, if you could pick one or two areas, C-SPAN going in the years ahead? Well, we believe that the core of C-SPAN is going to continue to be the place where we provide that long-form coverage of key congressional and White House events so that people have a record and archive a place to be able to go to find that. Mm -hmm. But we're going to continue to adapt technologically as our consumers, as our customers adapt. So, you know, if you ask Alexa to play C-SPAN radio, it'll happen. <laughs> uh, if people are looking at their Instagram feeds, we're going to be there. So we have a responsibility to be where our audience is, but at the same time, the core mission of C-SPAN we're going to preserve that for the long term. 
We're going to hear a little bit about that core mission as we listen to Susan Swain's oral history. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Seth Ehrenstein. It's December 13th, 2017. We're in Washington, D.C. in C-SPAN Studios, and we are so happy to have Susan Swain, the co-president of C-SPAN, with us today. I'd like to really start with the culture of C-SPAN and what C-SPAN is. I mean, um, I think in my research I'm looking back and about 1999 or somewhere in that timeline or that time frame, uh, the idea of, of, of branding, I guess, if we use this word today, I'm sure we didn't use it back then, branding C-SPAN as cable's gift to America. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the culture. Tell us about some of the rules about editing or not editing here at C-SPAN and how you show both sides of, of or many sides of the political debate. Well, I think it's an, an interesting uh, concept, especially now, because we are living in an age with the president whose right. uh, favorite expression is fake news. And uh, what we end up having created, and I, I, mean, I mean the royal we, the cable industry, the people who work here, um, and the many other constituencies that helped build this place over the years, is a place where you can go to get the whole story about Washington. So if someone's saying, I didn't say that, or um, that's not how it was cast, anyone who's interested, and particularly journalists, it's really been a boon to journalists, can go back and say, I can watch the whole thing. But what we really love is that any American, any, any person, but any, um, any interested citizen can go back and say, you know, they're accusing uh, the other side of this not happening. Let me watch it for myself. And um, the, the idea from the get-go here was show the whole thing. So we started with the House of Representatives, then added the congressional hearings and the press conferences, conventions, um, then the think tanks and the things that influence Washington. But from the get-go, the mandate was always do it without editing so that the whole story is available. Now, in an age when we're all watching three seconds of Facebook video, it's um, not the most exciting thing, but it is an important niche, an important public service, and um, you know our challenge is going to be preserving it in, a, in an age when people have less patience. But I think that the thing that we have done to grow our usability over time is that we look at ourselves as trying to be everywhere where people are today. So uh, we're on phones, you know, we do podcasts, and all of that excerpts portions of programming, but we do it under the C-SPAN mission, which you alluded to, which is that we never manipulate someone's point of view. So if we're going to edit, we take the whole thought so that we're true to what someone's expression was. And then we show both sides, um, and that means that the D's and the R's, and if it's a larger case, the, you know, the Greens and the Independents um, get uh, their shot at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the importance of that, I guess, is, is just having a place in our political culture where people don't just hear the majority point of view or whoever's yelling the loudest. Right. And I think that's what we all ascribe to here. And let us let us in behind the scenes. Um, it looks very orderly when we watch it on television. You have people on the right, the left, as you said, maybe independents and greens. But what's going on behind the scenes? I mean, are is there is there um, calls from either side saying you're too to this side, you're too to that side? What happens? Well, and, and, and is that good for you? Oh, when you're sure. getting calls, does that mean yeah. you, we're doing our job? Every one of our units, uh, whether it's the Washington Journal or the people who select the shoots during the day, um, all of our, our um, communicators, programs, newsmakers, all of, all of those folks keep records of who they have on, and uh, we make sure we check against them. Our video library is also a really good right. uh, honesty maker because anybody can go back and check that, that we've been fair to all parties when we cover things. So um, everybody understands that the goal is to, you know, if one week you have a D on, you maybe you have two Ds in a row, well, the next couple times you're going to see some Rs there. Um, the nature of what we do is we're covering individual events. They're by their nature going to generally have a point of view, but we always look for alternate point of view. So there's discussions that go on at the editorial table, which meets every day to decide where we allocate our camera resources. 
And um, then social media, well, we've always had, you know, the, the calls have always been part of our network. So from the get-go, we've always opened ourselves up to praise and criticism right there live on the air. And every host has always experienced someone calling up and saying, you're biased. But then two calls later, you'll get somebody that say, I watch you too, and I don't see that. So I, you experience this as a journalist. Sure. You feel as if you can defend your editorial decision um, then you're on the right path. There will always be people who disagree. Social media has been a game changer in this because you know, people are screaming at you all the time. It's really the nature of the beast on Twitter, and you can find all kinds of people who are yelling about this decision or that. But our defense is always to them. You're looking at it through the lens of one decision on you know, one day, and uh, you know, we've got 24 hours times three going on here. And uh, so if we can't stand the test across that broader spectrum, then we're in trouble. So in 1999, uh, you, you just mentioned the uh, times three. In 1999, what did C-SPAN look like in terms of numbers of mm. networks? Do you remember at that, that Well, I'm, I was You'll have to look at your yeah, timeline. Yeah, I, I do have to look things <laughs> up because I'm remembering when we launched things because it came, it was 1986, we had the Senate went live on C-SPAN 2, so we had that. C-SPAN 3 was a little evolutionary, and C-SPAN 3 is a, is a great um, uh, um, testament to our board of directors. Uh, because uh, the board said to us, you need to be in the digital space. It's evolving. So start that network, and um, you know, over time we will add it as we can. And um, so C-SPAN 3, I think, came along, if I can find it here, um, gosh, by 19, it's somewhere in that vicinity, 1999-2000, that we launched it. And it, then it, it started as a part-time service, and we called it C-SPAN Extra, yeah, 1997. And as C-SPAN Extra, and then we moved it to C-SPAN 3. Don't you love our naming system here? <laughs> you know, it comes from Lafayette, Indiana, which we always laugh, because if you go visit Lafayette, which is where Brian Lamb was born and raised, if you're on the street by the river, it's called River Road. If you're in the street where the markets used to be, it's Market Street. So he brought that naming sensibility to this place, and we name everything exactly what it is. C-SPAN 1, C-SPAN 2, C-SPAN 3, Washington Journal, call-in program. I mean, it's, you know, call it as you see it. Um, but, uh, you know, any other fancy name for the network probably wouldn't have flown anyway. So uh, it made, made things simple for us. Tell us about the people who work here. I, I recall, oh, I don't know, maybe five or ten years ago, you had a party for I believe people who had started on the you know the early years of C-SPAN and are still here. Oh well, what we do actually, right. Seth, yeah. is every couple of years we have a 25th anniversary right. party for staff. So we started in 1979. So our 40th is coming up. But um, Brian uh, Lamb and Jana Fay have been here since the very beginning. But we've got a sizable percentage. Right. We probably have 18, 20 people who have been here almost since day one. And, um, you know, myself in included, Kathy Murphy, Terry Murphy, Bruce Collins, Richard Fleeson, our fabulous chief engineer, and, and I'm starting to name names, and that's always dangerous. But there's a group of, of us who have kind of uh, been here and helped to grow the place. But there's a large majority of our staff who have been here at least 10 years mm -hmm. and longer. And they, I think the... That's got to be a point of pride for you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. First of all, yeah. it's a great place to work. Yes. When people come to visit, when they're, you're walking them out the door, they always say to you, you know, this, just, this place just feels healthy, happy. You know, like people enjoy being here. Um, and, you know, it, we work long days, and uh, there's, not, there's always stress in producing television, and we've got deadlines like everybody else. But... I think we've managed to create an atmosphere in the organization where people are here because they believe they're doing something, you know, it's a white hat organization, you're doing something to help society as a whole, and we get to do it in a really interesting space, television, radio, podcasts, and the like. So um, it, I, I think that's what contributes to the longevity. Here on the, on the edge of technology in the capital city, watching um, national and world events go in front of you, and yet doing it in an environment where people aren't, you know, cutting each other's heads off in the, in the control room while it happens, and that's a good thing. Now, um, what about the future? I mean, you know, if you look on most of the channels around that, you, you know, you would flip around, you would see people cutting each other's heads off. I yeah. mean, they live for that, uh, it would seem. And, and maybe to the, 
to the detriment of really reporting good news, or not good news, but important news, important stories. Sure. It, it more of it's more of, of, of the whole, not enough of the donut. Uh, right. Um, what's the future for, as you say, you know, books, uh, people who like books and, and even historical fiction, and people who want to watch a, an entire um, House Armed Services Committee hearing on, you know, base closures or something <laughs> like that. Um, what, what, where do you see C-SPAN and, and serious kind of journalism fitting in down the road? Right. Well. Uh, the, the best thing that our board of directors did at the very, very beginning was decide to make this a not-for-profit organization. So we never had to deliver eyeballs to, to advertisers. Now, uh, in the digital age, uh, while we don't know who's watching our television networks, we certainly can follow and do track who's on our, how many people are on our website, how many people are listening to podcasts. So that has put a little healthy dose of awareness and competition into a non-profit organization that's good for us. Uh, there are many, many people in our space in a, in a place where, if you look back at 1999, our threshold year for this conversation, uh, people thought long-form public affairs, who's doing that? Now, every single news website you go to, Washington Post, Politico, mm -hmm. they're carrying the big hearings for people who want them, and ironically, using our pool coverage that we provide on Capitol Hill, which is probably a story for another day. But um, so there's a lot of competition in that space. Competition is healthy and good for an organization. So um, the fact that we're a nonprofit means that we can, for the most part, uh, keep on producing long-form public affairs programming, uh, but we want to do a, a service that's useful, and we also have to get paid for it. So I think the longer challenge to us is what's happening with the cable television industry. And um, you know, right now our board tells us, and we can see trends where cord cutters and cord nevers are impacting the industry in the low single digits. Um, if that plateaus, we'll all be fine. If it's a huge trend that gets to um, you know a, a really low number, um, and most viewing is done on individual choice basis, that's a big challenge for us because our our funding model is all linear television carriage. And uh, we don't know the answer to that, I have to tell you. Um, but we, we have been guided for such a long time by people who believe in this organization and believe that what it does is important, that I have um, ultimate faith that we'll all figure it out together. In the interim, we're building the infrastructure that we are where everybody wants to be. Now, we're not going to go direct to consumer because that breaks the, the funding model with the cable industry. We would never want to do that. Um, but we, we can be in the consumer space. We are on phones, uh, but we're in the so-called walled garden of the cable companies and their TV everywhere offerings. Um, but we're also available, uh, you know, a, a bit on Facebook, a bit right. on YouTube with our political coverage that's ubiquitous. So we want to we, we be important to people in order to preserve the franchise and provide a useful public service um, and do that in a thoughtful way, and we can because we're not facing that competitive pressure every day. Okay. Um, what about, um, you know, you, you, ju you just mentioned um, the, all the different kinds of coverage. Uh, th there's a story, there's a particular story I know we wanted to talk about. Uh, in 2016, mm -hmm. when the cameras were turned off in, in the well of, o across the street. T tell us about that. Sure. Well, one, one sort of backstory to that is yeah. over our history, every time we've had the opportunity to ask for access on behalf of the American public with our cameras, we have done that. So every time there's been a new speaker, we've, we've written a letter to the new speaker asking for, can we put our own cameras in the chamber? The House and Senate chamber are the last two places really on Capitol Hill that are still government run. Answer's always been no to that um, by every speaker. Uh, they want to preserve, you know, that, that uh, government view and, and not have any of their members uh, perhaps have shots that they're not happy with. So that's uh, been a, a non-productive conversation, but one we're going to keep having. Um, likewise, we've written to every incoming chief justice, asked for cameras in the Supreme Court. Um, we've petitioned the, you know, during the Obama administration to cover the health care hearings, which he talked about on the campaign trail. So our history has been one of trying to knock down doors for access. The particular incident that happened uh, was the um, protest on the House floor by House Democrats. 
And what the speaker, Paul Ryan, did <clears throat> was shut down the cameras. And um, the Democrats, duly elected representatives of the people, continued on the floor of the House. And the lights were on, by the way, and that becomes an important uh, sidebar. Uh, and so what happened is our producers were watching all this. We track a lot of members' social media feeds, and we began to see that some of the members were putting it on Facebook or putting it on Twitter. And so we had a discussion here, the producers, Terry Murphy, our vice president of programming, and myself, shall we do this? Because if we do, we're going to be with it till the sit-in's over. You can't start this process and, and not carry it through. And we decided that um, when duly elected representatives of the people were on the floor of the House mm -hmm. of Representatives, that it's well within our responsibility as journalists to let people see that. So we, um, we had to work with our technology folks here to figure out how to get that signal from Twitter and uh, Facebook onto our networks. And you know, the bandwidth would always get interrupted, so we'd have to switch between mm -hmm. feeds all the time. But we did it all overnight until the next morning, until the, the sit-in ended. And there was a great big rally on the Capitol uh, grounds. I don't know if you went to that, but I walked it down at about 11 o'clock at night to watch all the people out there. And um, the speaker was not happy. Uh, there was some suggestion that credentials to cover Congress would be re reviewed, and I understand that he would be a bit peeved at us by that uh, about that. We heard, you know, from the press spokesperson that um, what we did was outside the rules of coverage. But I would do it again. And frankly, here's the the part I wanted to tell you: two years earlier, there had been a similar thing with the Democrats in charge, and Nancy Pelosi turned off the cameras, but she also turned off the lights. <laughs> um, and so the picture, it was also earlier in, in bandwidth transmission of cell phone pictures, but there were some Republican members who were transmitting from in the chamber, and we picked that up then too. So equal opportunity coverage is what the point I wanted to make. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's, let's get a, a, a little personal. If you were able to put a camera somewhere in the political process, and I'm, let's open it up to dinners at, 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 at Congress people's homes oh. when they're talking to lobbyists, they're talking to potential funders. Um, the cloakroom of the House or, or the Senate um, conferences between the Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. Where would you, Susan Swain, want to put a camera? Well, I do believe that people um, need to have some space to be able to discuss things, and uh, it's important to the political process. So, I really wouldn't want to be in the cloakroom. I wouldn't want to be in their dinner parties. Um, I, I also think the conference of the Supreme Court, understandably, where, where re the real arguments happen, right. um, would be very different if there was a camera in there. But the easy answer is, I, I think all of us here fundamentally believe and continue to argue that those 75 Supreme Court oral arguments every year should be open to the public. People can sit in the courtroom and listen to them. They put them on the internet in audio form right. at the end right. of the week. Uh, we should be able to let the public see those, and we still cannot. And, and I don't see a time in the immediate future when it's going to change. So that's the, the most important answer, because look at how many instances we've seen of the, how the Supreme Court impacts our lives on, on a daily basis. Um, and it, the importance of that institution has become so clear in the past maybe 10 years or so with the big cases in front of the court. And we should be able to hear those arguments. And... Um, yeah, so we do the best thing we can. Only C-SPAN would do this, but we put the whole hour oral argument audio on on Friday afternoon when the court makes it available. So in several days old in that case, already been reported upon. And we put still pictures. Uh, uh, you know, it's terrible television, but it gets right. the job done. Um, speaking about audio only, um, I live here in the D.C. area, and I been a, a long-time listener of C-SPAN Radio. Now you can get it on Sirius XM, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get it all across the country. Yes, but, but when I talk to a lot of people from out of D.C. and I say, oh, I listen to, I listen to it on C-SPAN Radio, they don't really know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. all of them. Um, but some of the things that you put on there, like con uh, conversations that LBJ had with people on, uh, you know, mm -hmm. just listening to it on the radio, not great audio. There's, uh, of course, on the radio, there's no pictures. They're fascinating. C-SPAN radio is, um, is really uh, something that, that uh, stands apart from C-SPAN television because the medium is so different. 
I, I went to, I took a lot of communications classes in college, and um, Marshall McLuhan was, you know, big theorist in the 1970s and 80s, and he always used to say the medium is the message, right. and that television was a cool medium, radio was a hot medium. Well, what does that mean? Well, we learned what it meant here when we were thinking about doing the radio station. So as we were preparing for it, we were trying to experiment with how would we ID people? How do we do it without interrupting? And we, we made some, some sample tapes and we were all going to get together and listen to different styles of IDing. And I, I realized that hot medium thing when we all sat around the table and the first thing that came up was, wait a minute, how did that that event end? Because it was really interesting and we cut it off because we were just doing a sample. People were into it, and they're into it because when you listen with your ears and your eyes are not engaged, yeah. your brain works. Uh, television, you can have it on in the background and right. never do anything, but radio is an involving medium. So a lot of the events that we cover translate very differently when you're listening on radio. Um, and for me, you know, I, I listen, it takes forever to get here in the morning and get home at night. I listen to C-SPAN radio and things that I've had on on my desk on television, uh, I'm suddenly realizing I can really understand somebody's point of view or see how passionate somebody is about something by their tone of voice. So radio is really important. By the way, all of your friends that live around the country can get it because it's an audio app. Oh, yes, And yes, a yes. free audio app. And okay. we have C-SPAN radio and the audio from all three of our channels plus podcasts on oh, there. Wow. So there's lots of information. And it, it makes um, Washington portable. And there are times when you that you really want to know. So, for example... The, we're talking in a time when they're redoing the whole tax code, going to affect absolutely everybody. And um, if you care about that and want to listen, you can be, you know, uh, at work or if you have a weekend house and you're away, you can listen to the debate on your phone. Um, so you don't have to miss it if you don't want to now because of technology, even if you're far away from the television set. What's, uh, what's cable's legacy, do you think? Well, it democratized the access to institution to content, excuse me, and um, it also democratized the content production and uh, through technology. And in the initial age, that was getting all of the channels up on satellite. Right. Right. Um, it m broke the monopoly that the uh, Hollywood studios and the, um, you know, the that New York City had on Americans' tastes on what people could watch and when they could watch it and uh, began to produce um, so much content that allowed people who never could have access to those fiefdoms before to create content and make it available. The next wave, of course, is now the digital age and the age of IP and uh, that has further democratized it because anybody with a cell phone can create content and things can go viral. And so we're on a whole new age, but again, once again, it's the broadband that the cable industry created that's allowed that right. to happen. Right. So it has been globally, but particularly in this country, a great uh, democratizer, and it's fundamentally changed society. Today's episode was produced by the Cable Center and made possible through generous underwriting provided by the Cable TV Pioneers. The supervising producer for the series is Leela Kokoris. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Diane Christman for the Cable Center, the nonprofit organization that tells the story of the American cable industry and connects people and ideas globally to advance innovation. Thank you for listening.